This is episode 365 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's articles are, Are You Preparing for SHTF or Tiatwaki, Part 1, and Beyond Antibiotics, 20 Medical Supplies to Store for Tiatwaki. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before we get started, I want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by my new ebook, The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. If you'd like to get some more information, click on the link in the show notes or come over to thepreparwebsitepodcast.com. Hey guys, I uh, wanted to talk, I, w- I was going to talk a little bit about the heat today just because it was on the Drudge Report. I was talking with a coworker today uh, as I saw that and I was kind of flipping through uh, on my phone and uh, her son lives in Arizona and it was you know super hot as well there. And just, man, it is crazy, crazy. I know, uh, you know one of the things, I, I just noticed it so much. It was almost like a slap in the face when I uh, we, we have a door, like a, uh, I guess a, it's not really a screen door. It's like a glass door. And we always go and make sure that it's closed at the end of the night uh, before we, uh, before we, you know, lock down and all that kind of stuff. And, and so uh, I opened up the front door to go do that. And man, the heat. It just it just slaps you right in the face. It was just so hot, even late at night. And so, uh, man, just be careful out there. Make sure you're drinking water and you're staying hydrated. And if you're doing any work in the you know out outside, make sure you do it in the times when the heat is not uh, the worst. Right? I mentioned the other day that I got a little overheated on the I guess that Monday before July fourth. And uh, went outside to do some work and just was out there a little too long and and that really felt uh, you know a little overheated. I mean, not to the point where I was in any medical danger or whatever, but I just really felt it more than ever. And I don't know if that's just me getting older or if it's hotter or what the heck, you know. Uh, it's just it's really really crazy out there. And so the next day, I, I mean, there was still work I needed to do, so I went out there early in the morning and late in the after, in the evening. And I uh, was able to take care of it and, uh, you know, still perspired my butt off and, and all that kind of stuff, but uh, did not feel overheated like I did uh, the day before. But uh, take care of yourself. Make sure that you're uh, taking precautions as much as possible, you know, with a little bit of planning uh, as you go out there. So I uh, just wanted to, to, to briefly touch on that because, you know, the drug report was saying that California was uh, afraid that their grid would buckle. Um, that's crazy. I was reading that Texas, and I've, I've already mentioned this, but uh, for those of you that, that didn't hear it, that Texas was uh, knew that it was going to be a hot summer, so they had invested in purchasing more electricity. I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert. I don't know how all that works or whatever, but uh, you know, they were anticipating this this uh, really hot summer. And uh, to be honest, I haven't noticed the brownouts like we've had in the past. But, um, you know, in the, in the past, I have noticed that in the in the schools and in our uh, school facilities, but I just haven't noticed it t- this time around. So maybe they did prepare a little bit better. But California is asking people to turn, uh, you know, turn lights off and, and different things like that during peak hours. So they don't, you know, mess up their grid. 
So, I mean, that's pretty serious when those types of things are going on. Uh, you know, if a grid, can you imagine if the grid went down in a, in a time like this? I mean, that would be very, very devastating, very devastating. And so, you know, that might be one of the things you think about. What what would I be doing right now if I didn't have any air condition? What You know, how would I be taking care of myself um, you know, how would, would I be, you know, where would I be getting my water, my cool water, or do I have any cooling rags or anything like that to be able to make sure that I stay cool and hydrated and, uh, you know, that I don't, um, you know, really get sick or, or hurt myself, hurt my body in a time like that. So uh, just kind of throwing that out there for a little bit of reflection and uh, hope, hope you do that and stay safe. All right. Our first article comes to us from survivalblog.com. Again, the article is, Are You Prepping for SHTF or Tiatwaki Part 1? It's not a very long article, but uh, there is a little bit of a difference here. And when I first started reading it the first time around, I was like, Oh man, he's missing this big part of it, but he does touch on it towards the end. So let's go ahead and dive right into this one. There is SHTF and then there is Tiatwaki. There is a difference. And guys, before I go any further, Tiatwaki stands for the end of the world as we know it. Just in case there's anybody out there who is, is listening, you're a first-time listener, or you've never heard the term Tiatwaki. SHTF. To me, SHTF means an incident that, although it's a disaster, isn't something that will collapse society as we know it. That is not to say that in an SHTF incident, there won't be looting or other behaviors outside societal norms. But for the most part, order and daily life will be restored to some level in a foreseeable future. Hurricane Katrina is an example of an SHTF scenario. Tiatwaki. Tiatwaki, on the other hand, is when societal norms are gone, with no recovery of vital infrastructure systems in the foreseeable future, and the incident impacts larger parts of the Earth's inhabitants. The keeping of societal norms will be challenged and in some areas will degrade quickly. Unlike an SHTF scenario, no one locally or from the state, federal, and even international community is coming to help you. It is important to determine what you are prepping for. Is it when SHTF, Tiatwaki, or both? Preparing for both SHTF and Tiatwaki have some similarities, however, they also have vast differences. The similarities are the need to have the basics of life available. These include such things as water, food, medical supplies, including medications, shelter from the elements, and security. The main difference in how you prepare for each boils down to the depth of logistics, capabilities, and skills. However, there are some variables that are different for each of us as to how we go about our post-Tiatwaki logistics and skill preparations. Available income to put towards prepping is obviously the main variable, but making frugal choices and applying ingenuity, I believe, can make up for a lack of funds. I believe that not having funds actually makes you a better Tiatwaki prepper in that it makes you think harder. A person who has lots of funds might say, I need something to increase my security, and then that person goes online and buys the latest and greatest widget. Someone with less funds to put towards prepping may have the same need to improve their security, but instead he or she thinks of ways to do it yourself, buy something of older technology that improves security, or perhaps figures other ways to raise the funds, like perhaps a group purchase. 
In a sense, the Tiatwaki prepper who has to think and be creative about how to improve their security actually gains more than someone who just buys the latest and greatest widget since they develop and practice critical thinking skills and in some cases, perhaps, learn skills by building their own capabilities. Time is also a variable that can make up for a lack of funds. In my younger days with a lower income, I had free time. Today, with advancements in my career field, I find myself with more income but less free time. Besides allowing one the time to DIY and develop skills, free time allows one to gain knowledge by researching old ways, say by visiting living history museums, taking courses, or reading. I find space is the other variable that impacts our ability to prepare for Tiatwaki. One might assume that income is an automatic solution to this, but that is not always the case. For example, someone in New York City who pays an exorbitant amount for a square foot of space might not have the funds for the additional cost of storage space needed for prepping gear and supplies. They may also not have the space for gardening or a place for solar panels. Space may also come with some caveats. Someone in an area that is less populated with inexpensive land and less strict government building regulations can build their own storage or obtain it cheaply. Local zoning or HOA regulations may also impact our ability to prep for Tiatwaki. The space at our BOL, or bug out location, allows us to better prepare for Tiatwaki by allowing for a large garden, orchard, stacks of cut firewood, space for animals, etc., At my home in the city, I am restricted by deed from having goats, chickens, and other farm animals. We can also not use our front lawn area for any gardening. Compare that to our bug out location where the building code is not very stringent, zoning regulations are not draconian, and farming is a way of life, not a hobby. SHTF versus Tiatwaki prepping requires a different type of thinking. In an SHTF planning scenario, you may have a gasoline generator for emergency power and several cans of gasoline. At some point in an SHTF scenario, electric will be restored and or transportation and commerce will start back up and resupply can be done. However, in a Tiatwaki planning scenario, the planning premise is that gasoline is a finite supply and manufacturing, transport, and distribution will not be restored, at least on any large scale. So whereas someone who is prepping for only an SHTF scenario might store 50 gallons of gasoline for their generator, someone who is prepping for Tiatwaki might choose solar, wind, or water-driven turbines for their electric needs. Perhaps they might even drill a natural gas well to power their generator or produce their own biodiesel. This brings us to the second difference between someone who prepares for SHTF versus Tiatwaki, skills and knowledge. The skills and knowledge of a person who prepares for SHTF do not have to be well-rounded. An SHTF prepper can't pick up a catalog and order two weeks worth of food, buy some five-gallon water jugs, and fill them up with clean potable water, and equip everyone in the family with a go-bag. Very little skill or knowledge is required. On the other hand, someone prepping for Tiatwaki looks at the long-range future with the assumption that there will be no organized recovery effort and that manufacturing, transportation, and normal commerce as we know it will not be restored. Life past our stored preps will require the knowledge, skills, and abilities 
to produce or develop replacements for needed items that were once readily available and often very inexpensive. The planning assumption that normal commerce will not exist for the foreseeable future presents four questions for a Tiatwaki prepper. Life in post-Tiatwaki society will, at the very least, focus on providing for our most basic human needs, food, water, shelter from the elements, and security. However, let's take a look at the questions that relate to provisions necessary. The first question. The first question is, how much of each item needed or wanted for life after Tiatwaki can I reasonably purchase and store? Available storage space, how long a particular item will last in storage, and amount of money designated will be the three primary factors that determine the answer for most resources. For example, do you have the funds to purchase and the space to store one, two, or five years worth of long-term freeze-dried foods? Two possible variables here are time and skill, such as do you have the time and skill to plant, harvest, and preserve your own food? If so, the need for stored food is lessened, since you created the means of production of your own food. At some point, every Tiatwaki prepper will have to plan for their own food production and preservation. For some items, determining how much to store might be more difficult. For example, how many pounds of each type of nail, screw, wire, tape, glue, etc. will you need? Every Tiatwaki prepper should plan on the need to fabricate, alter, and or repair items in a post-Tiatwaki world. Question 2 is, how long will that inventory last post-Tiatwaki? For food and toilet paper, this determination might be easy because we can calculate food consumption based on serving size and needed caloric intake. Documenting toilet paper consumption now gives a pretty good assumption of what you will use post-Tiatwaki. How long your supply of nails and screws last will be more of a guess. One of the things that I plan on making for trade in a post-Tiatwaki world are baler buckets to get water out of drilled wells where the pumps no longer work. Based on knowing my neighbor's level of preparedness, I can assume how many I might need to make plus add a percentage for others. With that number in mind, I know how many stainless steel carriage bolts, nuts, and washer pipes, etc. I need to make that number. The biggest variable is the Murphy factor in that you often don't know what you need until you need it. One of the practices I use now is if I need, say, a turnbuckle for a project, I buy extra to have one on hand as a replacement or for when that unforeseen need arises. When you have to drive 45 minutes one way to the nearest hardware store today for not having a needed screw, bolt, nut, etc., it is an inconvenience. In post-Tiatwaki world, not having that same needed screw, bolt, nut, etc. can be life-threatening. Tiatwaki preppers need to develop the knack of recognizing that the most minuscule logistical need can have life-threatening impacts on their life in a new post-Tiatwaki world. One only needs to read the age-old for the want of a horseshoe nail nursery rhyme to see that something as simple as not having a nail can have dire consequences. Tomorrow we'll continue with questions three and four and wrap up this two-part article. All right, so the two-part article or the part two of this is already out there. Uh, you can go ahead and uh, click on click on the link at the bottom of this article to get to part two. 
but in the, I very possibly will read it a little bit later on in the podcast in another episode. But uh, you know, the one that I was really getting to is the skills. Yeah, you can buy gear and you can buy stuff for SHTF or Tiatwaki. But the real difference is going to be for Tiatwaki is you're going to want to have skills to be able to take you through. And that's where a lot of people are lacking as he was going there with, uh, you know, with the skills and the knowledge and having that. That's why a lot of the times preppers will talk about having knowledge and skills and putting that into place because that's something that you can take with you no matter where you go, whether it's an SHTF scenario, whether it's Tiatwaki or whether you're camping or trying to help your neighbor start, uh, you know, uh, a fire pit, you know, so you can do s'mores or whatever. All, you know, those skills will, will take you through uh, a long, long way. And so that's why we're always talking about skills and adding to our skills. So guys, again, that's over at survivalblog.com. You can go click on the link in the show notes, like always, if you want to go check out this this article or if you want to jump to part two, you don't want to wait for me to read it a little bit later on in another podcast episode. All right, one of the things that that first article mentioned was medical. And so I always think, you know, when I first started in preparedness, I thought medical was one of those things that I really need to brush up, brush up on. Because you can, you know, you can learn fire, you can learn how to, you know, how to make fire, you can learn how to, uh, you know, hunt and, and garden, and you can learn all, you know, filter water and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. But medical takes it to a whole nother level there. And, and, you know, we get sick and it's just so easy for us nowadays to go to the hospital or an emergency clinic or whatever. But if there was a Tiatwaki event, if there was, if you were in a poop hit the fan situation and you couldn't go to the doctor, you know, you want to have some things on hand. You want to have a little bit more knowledge, uh, a knowledge base in that medical side of it. And that's why I'm always pushing medical. That's why I'm always, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always willing to read articles from like Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy from doomandbloom.net. That's why I'm always promoting their book as the first prepper book that you should ever buy. I, I think that you should invest in that one. It's just really good because they wrote it from a standpoint if there wasn't a doctor available. There's a lot of there's a lot of first aid stuff out there. There's a lot of uh you know like uh, survival type stuff that will tell you okay stay how to stabilize a person, stabilize a person and then go get help or you know wait for emergency personnel. And they look at it as, as from the point of view that there's not going to be anybody to help you and so you know where do you go from there so this article comes up and uh, again the, the title is beyond antibiotics 20 medical supplies to store for tiatwaki and so i think that's one of those things you know when you uh when you can store medicine right now and you can you know you operate the same way that you operate your food storage first in first out uh, but you're able to to use it that way you would greatly, greatly thank the Lord when you, if you were ever in a situation and you had that medicine for whatever, for, you know, for whatever, if you couldn't go to the, the drugstore anymore. And, and, you know, if, if there was ever an event and things started going downhill really fast, if you've ever noticed, drugstores don't carry a whole lot of product. If, you know, next time you go to uh, a drugstore, Look at some of their medicines, their over-the-counter medicines. You'll see that they're only two or three deep a lot of the times. And so that kind of stuff will go very, very quickly. 
And so I think that any you know medicines that you can invest in right now, um, your health and all that good stuff, I think it's important. And so I wanted to read this one. Uh, it's coming to us from theprepperjournal.com. And again, the title is Beyond Antibiotics, 20 Medical Supplies to Store for Teotihuacan. So let's go ahead and read this one. When it comes to medical supplies, some preppers store antibiotics, band-aids, Tylenol, maybe a bit of gauze and call it good. Perhaps a few more things, but not much because they've got a doctor in the group or barring that silver or barter goods and skills to be able to make arrangements with a doctor. Unfortunately, that approach may not work out so well. Realistically, how many supplies can a physician be expected to stockpile for a community? How many physicians are actually preppers who foresee a need? Post-disaster, it will be far easier to locate a physician who knows how to use supplies than it will be to locate the supplies themselves. While obtaining prescription medications in quantity is a challenge, fortunately, many life-saving supplies and medications can be purchased right now by anybody. So let's discuss some of these medications and medical supplies that we should acquire before Tiatwaki. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is a good start. Over-the-counter medications. You've surely already laid in a significant supply of Tylenol, Advil, Aleve, Aspirin, and the like. Other dirt cheap, if purchased in bulk like through Amazon or Sam's, over-the-counter over the meds to stockpile include Sudafed, the real stuff that is behind the pharmacy counter and not available online because of its use in making meth, which is wonderful for upper and lower respiratory infections, guifensin, a cough suppressant, lopramide or Imodium, which may soon become more regulated and expensive as narcotic addicts abuse it to achieve a high, Meclizin or Dramamine, which is used not only for nausea, but is also helpful helpful for mild anxiety, which we can expect to see a lot of post-Tiatwaki. And Ratadine or Zantac, an anti-ulcer medication that is also an antihistamine. All right, guys, I am going to, I'm going to, just like all the time I do a, uh, uh, some kind of medical uh, medical article. I'm always murdering the the names here. They just they kill me. Sorry. All right. So uh, Benadryl, due to its numerous applications and importance, gets a paragraph all of its own. Tablets and capsules are preferred to liquids for storage. Liquids are faster than pills for getting into the bloodstream. We purchase most of our Benadryl in the forms of tablets because they are the cheapest. However, we also store capsules because the powder can be mixed with sterile saline to make an injectable local anesthetic for those allergic to lidocaine. Or it can be mixed with skin cream for topical application. We carry children's chewable Benadryl in our emergency first aid kits because the chewables get into the bloodstream faster and because Benadryl is used as a first response in an allergic reaction. Benadryl is also sold as a sleep aid, though under different names and for higher prices. Guys, I, and I do want to stress that Benadryl there. I mean, my wife uh, started having an allergic reaction to uh, to shrimp and to seafood. And it actually started with shrimp and she was able to still eat fish and stuff like that. And then it went to fish and it's pretty much any fish, uh, any seafood now. And uh, it's gotten it's gotten bad, even to the point where we go to a restaurant and if they cook on a on a, a grill even if she doesn't eat anything with seafood in it at all or anything fried or whatever but even sometimes the grill if they don't clean it very well 
um, she can have an allergic reaction. And it's not so bad to where she needs an EpiPen yet, although she does have one. But it has gotten bad and it's, it continues to get worse. And so you might be okay. You might have your family members might be completely great with no type of allergic reaction. Then all of a sudden, like my wife in her 30s started uh, receiving this reaction, which she hates because, you know, she um, she loves shrimp. You know, we love shrimp. And so we don't normally go to seafood places anymore. And we're always asking questions when we go to the restaurants. But uh, that's why Benadryl is so, so important. All right, lidocaine. Injectable lidocaine is available only through a physician and finding a physician who will give it get it for you is getting increasingly difficult. Fortunately, powdered lidocaine is still over the counter. It's available through medicalnumbingagents.com. Powdered lidocaine is mixed with sterile saline to make an injectable solution for a local anesthetic. It is also mixed with cream to make a topical anesthetic. For less serious wounds, 5% lidocaine cream works well. Topical creams. In addition to the Benadryl and lidocaine creams mentioned above, add to your supply some Lotrimin or Lamisil cream for fungal infections like athlete's foot and ringworm, hydrocodazone for itching, and zinc oxide or desitin, etc., not just for diaper rash, for eczema, rashes, and poison oak, ivy, and sumac. And uh, guys, I'm, I'll just let you know, there are essential oils that will help with that as well that uh, you should definitely look into. All right, burn gels. With Tiatwaki comes a lot of alternative methods of cooking and a lot more opportunities for burns. Most burn gels contain only 1-2% to lidocaine, but Alacan has a greater concentration, 4%, for better pain relief. Epinephrine. Most people have heard of EpiPens for those at risk of anaphylactic reactions, but epinephrine has many other medical uses, too many to detail in a short article. EpiPens actually have five doses of epinephrine in them, and though the potency of epinephrine decreases over time, even at five years out of date, epinephrine is still about 60% effective and can be used in an emergency. YouTube videos show how to access the remaining epinephrine in a used EpiPen. Epinephrine is what's used to be in the primatine asthma inhalers that were taken off the market by the FDA a few years ago. One company in the U.S., DrNaturalHealing.com, sells epinephrine powder in a capsule and it's somehow available online without a prescription. Epinephrine is also mixed with sterile saline and is used in conjunction with lidocaine as a local anesthetic and vasoconstrictor. Why you need vasoconstrictors. Vasoconstrictors resemble adrenergenic drugs and are called sympathomimetic or adrenergic energetic drugs. Guys, I'm sorry about that. I've never even seen those words before, even in medical uh, articles that I've read. All right, so uh, talking about the vasoconstrictors here. Um, number one, constrict blood vessels, which decrease blood flow to the surgical site. Cart number two, cardiovascular absorption is slowed, which lowers anesthetic blood levels. Lower anesthetic blood levels are lowered, which lower risk of toxic toxicity. Lower anesthetic remains ar around the nerve for longer periods, which means increased duration of anesthesia, and this decreases bleeding. All right, so that, that was kind of like a little, um, actually a graphic in the article. Diethyl ether. 
First used as a general anesthetic in the 1800s, if you or a loved one needs a simple operation, appendicitis, anyone, in a disaster, you're going to want some of this, and you can get it on Amazon. Remember, you are not performing the surgery. You're merely gathering supplies in case a licensed physician needs them to care for your family. Sutures, skin staplers, and Steri-Strips all have their place in a good medical kit. Yes, you could use sewing needles and silk or nylon thread, but be prepared. Those are going to hurt a lot more than a regular suture. Suture needles have a cutting edge and are curved to make going through skin much easier with far less scarring. Staplers are quick and easy, but not good for faces or joints. Steri strips are far less painful, especially ideal for children, and also good for the paper-thin and easily torn skin of the elderly. Dermabond is superglue designed for use on people. Vetbond is the same stuff, but packaged for animals, and a lot cheaper. Yes, you could use superglue, but superglue will cause a chemical burn in some people, and when things are already bad, you don't want to make them worse. Dermabond and Vetbond are really good for children in some facial wounds, especially around the eyes. And guys, when it comes to like sutures and, and skin staplers and all that kind of stuff, they're coming out with some really cool stuff. I mean, there's a one one device that I've seen on Facebook, just you know, on the videos that pop up, and I don't know the name of it, but uh, it just looks like it kind of intertwines, and you're able just to kind of close the uh, the wound up. It, it's pretty cool looking. So they're always coming out with advances on those. All right, so gauze. All kinds of it and lots of it. Two by twos, four by fours, and large sizes. Tefla pads, rolled gauze, sterile and non-sterile. Even relatively minor injuries can use a lot of it. It's incredibly cheap online. Shop medvet.com for now. And like many of our medical supplies, almost all of it is made in China. You know that place on the other side of the planet whose exports are government keeps slapping tariffs on, and the issue of tariffs is not the point. Having the vast majority of many of our medical supplies produced in a country that is increasingly hostile towards us should give us all pause for thought. Medical tape. Various kinds and widths, including Tegaderm, clear bandages for covering IVs and gunshot wounds. SAM splints. Moldable, reusable splints are probably a better idea than plaster casts for broken bones. How are you going to get a cast off post collapse? Ace bandages and instant cold packs, just in case your ice maker isn't working. Scalpels. The most commonly used are number 10, 11, and 15. Syringes. With and without needles in a variety of sizes for different purposes. Injecting medications and anesthetics, irrigating, etc. will definitely be wanted. Enema bags. They aren't just for enemas. They can also be used for to administer fluids in the case of dehydration. The same is true of IV bags. Have a few for your family. They're cheap now and invaluable in saving a life when you need them. Dentic Temperin. Filling and cap repair kits are quite cheap through Amazon. Dental emergencies actually constitute a large percentage of emergency room visits. And guys, that is a pretty good idea to have, and not just for the poop hit the fan, but just to have in case you uh, have an issue over the weekend and you, you you know you need to be able to get to your dentist uh, you know on Monday, and and that way maybe you save yourself from going to an emergency room. All right, uh, per- permethrin. 
Permethrin kills lice, fleas, bedbugs, ticks, mosquitoes. What's not to love about it? Yeah, it needs to be used carefully. It is a pesticide developed to kill things and can become toxic to people if not used as directed. But those insects are not innocent creepy crawlies. They transmit diseases and they need to be stopped. Pregnancy tests. While most home pregnancy tests today are performed for curiosity's sake, in a post-collapse situation without access to advanced medical care, a physician is really going to need to know whether a woman is pregnant to administer appropriate care. Is that pelvic pain appendicitis or is it an ectopic pregnancy? Every woman of childbearing age should have several tests and they're sold even at dollar stores. Cleaning. Bleach is always good for cleaning hard surfaces, but for the body, you're going to want some rubbing alcohol, at least 70%. Don't make the mistake of picking up a bottle of 50%. Iodine and perhaps a small bottle of Hibiclins. Benzylaconium chloride is nice too. Hydrogen peroxide is good, but it has a pretty short shelf life, so it's not a great item for preppers. However, if I knew the event was happening tomorrow, I'd definitely grab a bottle or two. Finally, Personal Protective Equipment, or PPE. Make sure you have plenty of masks and gloves for both patients and caregivers. Exam gloves will suffice for 99.5% of your needs, but you'll also want a few pairs of sterile surgical gloves. Hopefully, you'll never need them. While the above is not an exhaustive list, it's definitely a good start. There's so much we can do to prepare for our future medical needs. Education from licensed healthcare providers who recognize the need to be prepared is absolutely critical. Learning what medical or medicinal plants grow in our area and how to harvest, preserve, and use them is invaluable. Becoming aware of the improvisational use of other common items like honey for wound dressing and cough syrup and plastic food wrap for burn dressings also helps. Doctors in this country have achieved almost godlike status in the eyes of many. But they're really just people like the rest of us. The ones who are aware have their own families to prepare for, their own food, guns, and shelters, etc. They just can't be expected to have all the drugs and supplies necessary to carry care for everyone else. We have to do that ourselves. All right, guys, so good article here and uh, a lot of information, a lot of things to consider there. You know, if you have a doctor or you have a nurse in your uh, group, you might want to ask them what kinds of things would you uh, would you want to have, you know? Uh, and even if you have a friend, you know, I have a friend. Uh, I might ask this question of her as well. You know, if you never were able to go to the the drugstore or you're never able to go to the medical supplies ever and, and, and get what you wanted ever again, what kinds of things would you want to have at home to uh, take care of your family? And so I wonder what uh, what she would say. So I have a friend who's in the medical field, and so I just I just wonder what she would say. All right, guys, again, that's over at theprepperjournal.com, and like always, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. You might want to use this article to make a list of maybe some items that you want to have for your medical supply at home. Well, everyone, that is it for episode 365. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. That way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. And take a moment to connect with me. I have a ton of ways to connect in the show notes and especially our Facebook group page. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.